Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Andrea Pearson. And our guest this week is Joanna Penn, thriller author, thriller author and creative entrepreneur. Most of our listeners already know who she is, but for those who don't, Joanna is a award-nominated New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of thrillers under J.F. Penn, and she also writes nonfiction for authors under her under Joanna Penn. She's also a podcaster and an award-winning creative entrepreneur. Her site, thecreativepen.com, has been voted in the top 100 sites for writers by Writer's Digest. And I apologize already for mangling the intro, Joanna, uh, <laughs> but well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for anybody who you know, has not already listened to your podcast, oh, which is well, most of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. For, I'm, I'm excited about coming on your new show. Um, what do people not know? Uh, well, you and I hung out in New Orleans a couple of years ago, and we have pictures of us with baby alligators, which was very cool. <laughs> it's still my Facebook profile because I haven't found any other young animals to hold since then that are as interesting. <laughs> we'll have to sort something out in Nashville later this year where, where we both will be, I think. Yes, at the, at the Career Author Summit. We'll get it right this time. And uh, But why don't we jump into the questions? And Andrea is a little sick today, but I think she's still going to take over her questions. Yeah. And if I need somebody to take over for me, we'll have Joanna read them to herself and then answer <laughs> them. <laughs> okay. So... Um, while we were researching on Joanna, I had no idea that you had like a background in psychology and theology. Uh, and so my first question was, um, how has that affected basically your career? Um, mostly how you market because psychology, I mean, I took a bunch of psychology classes in college and, and it did, you know, kind of made me tweak things here and there. Yeah, well, it's actually, it's the other way around. So I, I do have a master's in theology. Uh, I was at Oxford. So it's probably one of the most useless degrees in the world. <laughs> it's about a thousand year, years old, the curriculum. <laughs> I did like, you know, Greek and um, Israel before the exile and things like that. But what's so funny is when I finished that and I went into the corporate world um, out of Oxford and that degree became basically all it was was a ticket into London consulting. Um, and But what happened when I started writing fiction was the books I've always loved to read, you know, Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. I love monks, you know. So what's happened with my fiction is my theology degree has shaped my Arcane series in particular. And in fact, Crypt of Bone, the second book in the series, I wrote off the back of my um, thesis from college, which is basically questioning why do people do bad things in the name of God? Um, and that kind of obedience to a higher power, like why do people do that stuff? And so it, 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 what's so funny is it's all come through in my fiction and psychology the same. So my main character, Morgan Sierra, in my Arcane series is, happens to be a psychologist at Oxford University <laughs> um, and also ex-Israeli uh, IDF, so she can uh, kick, kick the bad guys. But that's what's so funny. That, so that history, the theology side has come through in my fiction. The psychology, I didn't do any kind of marketing. I was specializing in like um, the neuro side and clinical psychology. So I was actually intending to become a psychologist. And again, that's kind of gone into my fiction. But um, I've never really used it in the marketing side uh, or behavioral psychology side. Uh, I've used it much more in terms of, for example, Jerusalem syndrome, which is where people arrive in Jerusalem and think they're Jesus or Mary or whatever, that's gone into my books as well. Things like that. So it's more that my interests have informed my stories and continue to because I, you know, travel and do lots of things uh, rather than the, the business side. That's cool. Um, I had never heard of Jerusalem syndrome. That's, that's <laughs> kind of fascinating, actually. <laughs> it totally is. Okay. So we wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the nonfiction side of your business. And um, my question here is what or who got you started with podcasting courses and writing nonfiction for authors? Sure. Well, my first nonfiction book was called Career Change. It was, I wrote it, I wrote it and finished it just as Tim Ferriss published The 4-Hour Workweek. <laughs> it was one of those times where you've written your book, the book of your heart, and then you realize that someone else has just written it and become really famous and <laughs> sold loads of books. And so I, I realized at that point, it was a bit of a zeitgeist. Um, it was also the time Gary Vaynerchuk's um, Crush It 
uh, came out similar time. So this was kind of just over a decade ago. And so I wrote Career Change because I was in a corporate career and I really wanted to do something else with my life. I didn't know what. So I listened to Tony Robbins, good American guru, and decided to write a book on on changing careers to see if it would help me. Uh, in the process of writing that book, I learned about publishing, got ripped off by some scam artists and started blogging in order to share that. And then I realized um, I, I published, I, at the time, self-publishing, this is 2007, six, seven. Um, it was print some books and then sell them from your garage. And I realized at that point, I had all these books in my garage and I didn't know how to sell them. So that's when I started to learn online marketing. And my model and my mentor still really is Yaro Starrett. Uh, Y-A-R-O. Um, he's at yarrow.blog. He's been podcasting, you know, since 2005 or something. And what I, I was living in Brisbane, Australia. He was in Brisbane. And although there were lots of Americans doing this, there were not many people in other places. And so I was like, wow, there's this guy in my town who is making money on the internet. So maybe I could do that. And then I could leave my job. Yay! <laughs> so basically, I was always, I never thought about writing fiction at the time. Uh, I really didn't think I could ever do that. And so I thought I would be a nonfiction author, speaker, cons you know, consultant, help people in that way, because that's the tradition I come from. Um, I started speaking professionally and basically modeling my career on Yarrow's, and he still makes money from um, all of these things. And yeah, I started offering courses and ebooks and direct sales straight away, consulting, speaking, all while doing my day job basically for, for five years after that. But I always started in nonfiction. And then over time, you guys know people ask you questions. So you start writing it down in a book because you think you might as well because you get the same questions over and over again. And that's how the nonfiction for authors started. It just kind of emerged from just trying to help and then turned into a business. Yeah, that, that's great. I actually remember Darren Rouse was from Australia too. There was like this whole group of pro, pro blogger type people that were really doing well and inspiring. And that's why I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. I forgot to mention in, in the intro and uh, apologies all. It is 9 a.m. my time. This is a little earlier than we usually record and I'm on my first cup of coffee. So <laughs> if I'm not too coherent, we can blame it on that. But uh, we're, so we're asking Joanna about her nonfiction and later also about her new audio book book on audiobooks. And the question I have for you, um, because we've talked before about how it's actually maybe easier, like an easier path to start doing nonfiction. And we see a lot of authors do nonfiction and fiction. Uh, so do you think for people who are interested in that, do you agree that it's like maybe easier to blog about it and write books about it and I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah. Well, it comes down to business models and how you want to make a living. So the reality is that with fiction, I mean, you are a fast writer. We've talked about this. You know, you're a fast writer. You can write a book a month and publish a book a month with fiction in a popular genre. And you can sell just fiction and make good money. Most people, 99.9% .9 of authors don't write that fast or don't write in a popular niche. Like I don't write like that. Um, so when it comes to a business model, you have to think, okay, I love writing fiction, but I know I cannot do the business model of write fast, publish fast, use Amazon ads. That's not me. So what else can I do? And as I said, I started out with nonfiction. So the reason nonfiction is, in quotation marks, easier is because one, it's very clear who your target market is. So if I have a book uh, which is called, you know, audio for authors, <laughs> you know whether or not you're interested in that book, right? It's really very clear. Um, so it's easier to target. It's easier to write to that market. So writing to market for nonfiction is much easier. Um, it's also easier to do advertising because there are very specific keywords on blogging for podcasting for you know ads that you can do. Also, and this is the biggest thing, you can. Have have multiple streams of income from nonfiction much more easily than fiction. So realistically, for fiction, unless you can license your books into all these different deals, which takes time, you really only get book sales in multiple formats for sure, but book sales. Um, or if you work with a publisher and advance and then you know royalties later, maybe you get an audiobook deal or whatever. But with nonfiction, you can have every other stream of income. So you can have consulting services, speaking, affiliate income, where you sell other people's stuff and get a commission. You can do courses, you can do live events, 
you can do pod, you know paid podcasting that there's just so much more of a business ecosystem around nonfiction so what i would say to people is it's not that writing the book is necessarily the easier bit it's that you can design a business model around nonfiction that can work much more easily than with fiction where realistically there is only one path which is write a lot of books in a niche Right. And I didn't mean to imply that, oh, it's so easy to uh, have a nonfiction career and become a six-figure author that way. Just that maybe the path is a little clearer. And like you said, you can make a lot more money potentially from your courses than from a three ninety nine ebook. Well, and actually, there are a lot more six-figure authors with nonfiction books, I think, I would think, than with fiction, because you can have one book. Like, I'm talking to a guy um, who's going to come on my show in a few months. Like, he's only got one book. And he just sells it in bulk to all these companies. And in fact, we know, we know, we all know Honoré Corda. Um, Honoré does the same thing. She has, you know, she has a number of books now, but she started out with one book for lawyers and she would just sell it direct to lawyers, um, and recover it with their branding. And this is a brilliant business model. This is bulk sales that has nothing to do with Amazon. You just get handed 50 grand here, you know, 100 grand here for selling the books into different markets or pet stores or wherever. So what I want people to get out of this is there are so many different business models for authors. It, it is not just write lots of books. It can be a multiple of all these things. And you know, that's how I make a living is all these different things. And I think for authors, it's natural for them to say, well, I'm going to start teaching fiction stuff because that's what I know. Or maybe I'm going to be an editor or a freelance editor on the side. But do you feel that, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty, not maybe not saturated, but competitive niche now. A lot of people are doing it. Do you think there's other niches out there that maybe if their interests lie that way, they might want to explore instead? Yeah. I mean, look, the reality is that authors need editors, authors need cover designers, and many indies who have done their own have decided to go that route. I think it's a broader case of services. You have to understand the cash flow money and the asset money. So to me, the asset money is you build something like a book or a website or a podcast brand or something, an asset that can earn you money while you sleep. That's the goal, right? You know, the independence goal. And that that can just tick away and occasionally you just go in there and push it a bit. And that's been my goal is to build a business that is beyond what I can physically do with my time. If, if it's about selling your time for money, then that is short-term cash flow. Now we all need short-term cash flow, people. <laughs> you know, we have to pay the bills. So when I started out, you know, for the first five years, I had my day job. And then when I left my day job, I was doing speaking workshops. I did consulting back then. Um, so people could hire me by the hour to, you know, help them with stuff. Um, and then over time I wound that back. So as the cash that, you know, I was able to build assets that drove cash flow. And then the time for money uh, was able to come down. So that's what I want people to think. If you're listening, you're like, well, you know, all I can do to pay the bills is do some editing or cover design or whatever services, then great. But think about making sure you've got enough time to build those assets that will make you more money. So for example, maybe we'll come on to affiliate uh, income. If I, I know that if I do uh, a podcast episode, if I write a blog post, if I record a video, that will take me some time. But once I've done it, then it will keep earning me money ongoing and I don't need to do anything else on that. Or if I write a book and put it out there, I know it's going to make me money. So the asset side versus the cash flow is the thing. And in terms of being crowded, <laughs> hell, being an author is crowded. <laughs> Being a fantasy author is crowded, whatever. It doesn't matter what niche you're in. The world is crowded. What you have to do is build a personal brand so that people want you. So um, don't just go, I edit every type of book in every type of genre. You know, No, that's not what you do. And that's bad because you can't possibly do that. So maybe you only edit nonfiction books in the finance niche, which would be fantastic because they will pay you lots of money. So pick your niche um, and yeah, just stand out basically, which is easy to say, but hard to do in any, in any niche. Absolutely. It's funny how often people think that they need to have a very broad appeal in order to be successful when if you are one of very few people who specializes, like the fewer, so the fewer specialists there are, the greater they can charge. So it's, it's sort of Absolutely. counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, all right. So uh, in the past, we've heard that one of the keys for building a successful nonfiction career is to build authority in your chosen topic or illustrate authority in your chosen topic. So how would someone go about doing that? For fiction or nonfiction? We'll say nonfiction. Yeah. So nonfiction, I think, um, it, you know, clearly having a book, one of the main reasons most nonfiction authors write a book, is not because they necessarily want to be a writer. It's because they want to build authority so they can get bigger speaking income. I think we all know Jim Kukrell, uh, who was a co-podcast host on the Selmore Book Show, no longer because Jim has gone back to the speaker circuit and off the back of his latest book. And that is a tried and tested model for speaking income. Um, and speak, you know, you can get really good money for speaking income, you know, several thousand, you know, I, I have a friend who gets like 20 grand uh, for doing a keynote. Um, I don't get that much, <laughs> but then I speak for authors. So this is a real key, people. Choose your niche carefully and go where the money is. Um, but yeah, so for nonfiction to be an authority, it is about the long-term game, um, I think, and that's where content marketing comes in. So like the reason I'm on your show and the reason we all know each other is we've all been doing this a long time. You know, I pretty much was one of the first people podcasting in the independent author niche, possibly the first in the indie space. There were other writing podcasts. Um, and that was even before it was called indie. I remember the first time we used that term, you know, it was, it was not what we used at the beginning. So I think time in the market and demonstrating that you are part of the niche, that you are consistently delivering in the niche. Um, all of these are true in whatever, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, really. You know, the longer you're around, the more evidence there is that you do know what you're talking about, then you will build that authority and then the opportunities will come to you. And I, I think that's what I wanted to say to people. Um, sometimes you feel like you're, you have to push, push, push all the time. But actually, over time, if you build your brand, you build your content out, you build the fact that people can see you and find you and hear you and read you, they will come to you and you, you won't have to be out there pitching, pitching all the time. It, it will come to you. So you kind of hinted at affiliate income and we should say that this is something that comes after you have an audience. <laughs> Otherwise you'll be lucky to make 10 cents on Amazon. But, uh, which is how I first made my first money online. I remember I made 90 cents and I was so excited from, <laughs> from my little history website. Um, but how do you go about choosing affiliate programs that you want to be a part of? And is there any concern that people will think you're selling out? Or, you know, once you try to start making money, I feel like people judge you a little more harshly than when you're just putting information out. Well, okay, so there's two things on that. One, um, you have to be an ethical affiliate. So unfortunately, there are a group of people online who do uh, scammy affiliate stuff. And yes, sometimes people will accuse others of doing that when they don't. So my number one thing is if I use a product, so let's, let's say um, Scrivener. Do we all use Scrivener, all of us? No, Andrea doesn't. Do you use Andrea Vellum? A, she's just over there in Word or what something. What about Vellum? Do we all use Vellum? No. Yes. No. Oh, Andrea, what the hell? How do you run your business? Okay, well, I'm just going to pick um, Vellum then. Okay, so Vellum is software that I use and um, both Joe and Lindsay also use to format our ebooks and for some people, print books. It is brilliant software. It makes life so much easier and uh, I love it. So why wouldn't I recommend that to other authors? So what I did, and um, this is a tip, if you want to do affiliate income, it's not just, the, okay, so Amazon affiliate, which is where you, you know, you get a link to a book. That is the lowest affiliate income possible. I mean, I only make about uh, 500 a month from that, which is, you know, it is a lot for most people on Amazon affiliates, but, you know, compared to some of the other programs. So what I do with software, so Vellum, Scrivener. Uh, what else? Oh, I'll tell you about another one in a minute. But doing tutorials for software that you use as part of your business is really good for affiliate links. So you can go to uh, my Vellum tutorial, for example, and in it, I say, um, here's how to use Vellum. By the way, if you'd like to buy it through my link, go to thecreativepen.com forward slash Vellum. <laughs> and you need to make really easy to say links, right? And then uh, some people, because they found the video useful, will buy the software through my link. 
uh, I do a lot of video tutorials. So for example, how to build your website, your author website in 30 minutes. That's a series of videos um, that have affiliate links also to hosting, to um, site uh, theme, and to ConvertKit for email marketing. And again, I say in it, I use these services. This is my link. If you click my link, I will get a percentage of the sale at no other cost to you. You know, so being an ethical affiliate is the most important thing and sharing stuff that actively is useful to you and to your audience. So for example, um, and this is really easy in nonfiction, obviously, and it doesn't matter what niche you're in, you can find products, services, tools that you use in your business that you can do things like tutorials on. Then um, services, for example, I'm an affiliate of Reedsy which again, we think we all know Ricardo from Reedsy, a wonderful company that help authors find editors, cover designers. Um, I don't do that work, but I refer people. And again, that is a, an affiliate link. And again, everywhere on my website, it says I have affiliate links. So you just be really honest about it. And it's not a problem if you're honest. So, uh, And then courses, I do webinars with uh, Mark Dawson, with Nick Stevenson, with uh, Joseph from Learn Scrivener Fast. You know, again, people I think are the best at what they do, and this can be done in any niche. So let's pick um, someone who writes books with a lot of dogs. Lindsay, you have dogs. Um, dog people buy a lot of stuff for their dogs, right? I mean, just buy stuff like here's a new lead or a new brand of lovely vegan dog food, <laughs> which I have seen. Um, so if you write even fiction for dogs or you have a nonfiction thing around dogs, what, what could you do that will help dog owners will also recommend something that you really like and that you can get paid a percentage of. So that's what I think is important for people to consider. What do I already use? Could I get an affiliate link for that? And how could I help other people like me use it? For example, do a tutorial video. So does that make sense? Definitely. And, you know, speaking of other niches, one of my most profitable profitable affiliate sales from one sale was for almost $600 from home security cameras. That was because I used to do home improvement stuff. And so, yeah, Amazon is the worst. <laughs> you, know, you get those 90 cents if you're lucky and only the 24 hour window if somebody clicks. Yeah, the cookie the for 24 hours. Well, you've got, that's a really good example there. So home security and gadgets, because they're often higher, um, higher price. Um, but there, see, that fits if you do nonfiction about home security, but it also fit, or for, you know, parents, stuff like that. But it also fits if you write thrillers or crime or other things where people are like, oh my goodness, I'm reading this and now I'm scared. Uh, here's a home security thing. <laughs> you know, you, what you have to think is what could be, yeah, what is, truly useful and what is ethical and real, people can tell, you know, people, what's so funny is people will email me and say, Hey, I'm, I want to buy Vellum and I, I, do you have a link I can use and I'll buy it through your link. You know, that's what people are great. And if you're good about it, that's what they do. And also if you use a link, you know, people don't have to use your link. They can just go and do their own thing. And do you remember, it's probably been a while at this point, about how big your site got and your podcast and everything before you were actually able to make, you know, decent income from the affiliate programs? Well, what I did, so I started the website December 2008 and the podcast March 2009. And I remember almost chucking it all in the end of 2009 because it was still really bad. Uh, like as in there was no one around, but this 2009 in with the keyword self-publishing, there was nobody talking about it. It still had the vanity press kind of thing. So I was very early in the niche, but what I did from day one was I always put links in. So I've always used Amazon affiliate links every time I've mentioned my book or anyone else's book. I have, as soon as I started using software, I would get an affiliate link. So it never mattered to me that my, my, my traffic was small. I knew that one day my traffic would be big and that this is a niche I care about. So that's what I was going to do. Um, I'll come, yeah. So basically, I always intended to make money that way because I saw Yarrow doing it. I saw... Um, like you mentioned, Darren Rouse at ProBlogger doing it. Um, you know, it's a standard way to make money online. What I will say is by I left my job in 2011, I was making only about $1,000 a month 
in total. And I had uh, two books at that point, I think. So most of my income was not books. It was from live stuff and affiliate stuff. Um, and it's, you know, the percentage has gone up and down o- over time, but it's generally at least 50% of my income is affiliate sales now. So because my traffic's so much bigger. So what I want people to think about it is, yeah, sure, that $1.19, which I think was my first affiliate payment, was nothing. But if this is a niche you care about and you're going to be consistent with for a long time, then build, build it in now so that you don't have to kind of go back and re-architect it later. That's uh, that's excellent advice. And one of my favorite stories of affili- affiliate income, uh, I'd worked with a guy, I think his name is Jeffrey Morrison, who uh, he did uh, hardware reviews on the wire cutter for his like main job. And he had also written a novel. And if you went to that novel's page and looked at the also bots, it was all flat screen TVs and laptops. <laughs> so hopefully he was making some serious income on that. He but, probably um, was. And yeah. good on him, you know. I mean, the, 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 this is the other thing I wanted to say. I think there seems to have become this romance in the indie space that you're only valid if you, all your income comes from fiction book sales. Like, that seems to be an energy that I feel in the air. And I'm here to say that is not necessary. Like, don't be romantic about where your money comes from. Make your money. Um, enjoy what you do, write your books, uh, and invest. Like, I, you know, I know Lindsay invests, I invest because I want more and more freedom to write more and more what I want. I do not want writing to be a job job. It needs to be part of it. So if I can make enough money from affiliate sales to enable me to write my next novel and not worry about the sales, then awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. So one, this is this is possibly a very specifically Joe thing to worry about for me, but um, the nonfiction often has what what you would call like the canon texts. Like once you start looking into a certain genre uh, subject, there is usually like the, the the standard thing you go to start your research with. Uh, and if you're going to be in that same subject for nonfiction, how do you avoid simply regurgitating uh, what you learned from prior books? Like, what's the policy on plagiarism and that sort of thing? Uh, well, I think it's the same. You do the same with fiction. How many novels do you read? And then when you write, I mean, you're using tropes and ideas and things from your world. That's the same with nonfiction. I mean, when I like this book, Audio for Authors, um, it, it is my latest nonfiction. Uh, it's based on over a decade of my audio experience of podcasting and audiobooks. But also I've read, there are actually aren't that many books on audiobooks and podcasting. I mean, there are more on podcasting, but they're not good enough. <laughs> So I'm hoping that this will become more of a canon text for authors. But I read some really good books on audiobooks. And then the obviously plagiarism is directly copying chunks and passing it off as your own. Whereas what I do is I will the books that I use obviously go in the bibliography that I've read um, and got ideas from. So for example, Matt Buckman, ML Buckman, who's a romance author, has got a fantastic book on how to narrate and record your own audiobook. And that's brilliant. And so I directly refer to that book in my book and I also quote from it. And so for me, writing nonfiction, it's all about bringing people into the ecosystem of the topic. Um, and over time, it all kind of feeds together. But in my mind, like the only issue with plagiarism is if you're copying and pasting stuff, whereas we all know that's not what we do. So, um, also just on, there are so many books in a niche. It's the same in any niche and it has to be, um, so let's pick another topic. Uh, let's, you know, um, diet or, um, you know, um, re- I just read the Piopi diet. You might know that one, um, or keto. People don't just buy one book on these things. They buy a ton. It's like, oh, maybe this person has the little tip that might help. So that's the truth in any genre. And we never just like readers. We never buy one book in a niche. We buy them and everything. <laughs> and I think too, once you've read a number of them, you're naturally going to start to just put that knowledge in your head and then filter it through your own interests and it becomes your voice. 
and, and your own experience. So I would not recommend you write nonfiction in a niche you don't know anything about. Um, to me, I write nonfiction when I've learned something that I think will be useful to other people or that I want to codify in some way. So obviously, not everyone will be able to write a book on audio for authors in a way that I have because I've got a, you know a lot of experience. So you're exactly right. You you take all that knowledge from what you've learned and you put it in the book with your spin. So these are my experiences. This is what happened to me and no one else can replicate that. All right. Well, thank you for answering our questions on the nonfiction. Because I feel like I haven't heard you talk about that as much on your show and in interviews. And it, I feel like people, like you were saying, they can have income from both. You know, there's no reason you like, if I'm not a six-figure fiction author, I'm failure. You know, why not yeah. just take it wherever you can get it? <laughs> Look, I, just to be clear, I am not a six-figure fiction author. Uh, I make more than six figures from book sales and I make multi six figures from my business, my creative business. But um, that's why I wanted to bring it up as well, because, you know, I've got like 17 novels and I don't make six figures from my fiction only. So I wanted, to, I think that should be encouraging for people. I put out like one novel last year. So. <laughs> I mean, that one might explain it. <laughs> so yeah, this is the thing. We still want to love what we do. And, you know, Lin Lindsay and I know each other now a long, long time. We met each other way back early in the early days, right? Online, um, on Twitter. And we're still here. <laughs> you know, a lot of people have gone, gone past on the wayside um, because they burned out or they hated what they did in the end or they just couldn't sustain it. And for me, one novel a year is pretty much sustainable. Oh, that's great. And I appreciate you talking about this and letting people know it's okay. <laughs> it's okay yes. to do both. <laughs> um, so let's good talk about your new book, Audiobooks for Authors. And it's not just audiobooks, right? It's kind of about podcasting and voice technologies. Do you want to maybe introduce a little bit what you're covering in it? Yeah, sure. So basically, and I've got a sort of introductory section, which is, this is no longer about just putting out an audiobook or just putting, just being interviewed on a podcast episode. This is about an audio first ecosystem. And I look at my own behavior and I know this doesn't apply to everybody, but this is increasingly a behavior in the environment. So, um, I wear an Apple watch. Uh, if I want to know something, I will probably ask Siri, uh, or I'll ask Google assistant on my phone. So that's voice search that's impacting traffic. So, um, the Google Bert update in October, 2019 hit my website and I know it hit a lot of other people's. It affected one in 10 internet searches, switching over to this kind of voice led, uh, question based index. Um, so that's one thing. So I like, Hey Siri. And then when I walk down to the writing cafe, I will be listening to a podcast or an audiobook. Um, and I listen at 1.5 speed and, you know, my husband, I listen to mostly nonfiction on audio. My husband will listen to these super long fantasy novels. <laughs> I think he's got one of yours on his, his audio, um, Lindsay, but basically, you know, he likes audiobooks over 30 hours, 40 hours. So we both are kind of audio people, but now if you don't have, I don't read fiction or oh, I kind of listen to fiction occasionally in audio, but mainly nonfiction. So if you, I don't read blog posts anymore. I'm barely, I don't have social media on my phone anymore. Um, so if you want to reach me and people like me, if you're not on a podcast, if you don't have an audio book, I won't know you exist necessarily and I won't read your book. So if I'm listening to a podcast interview and there's someone I'm like, oh, wow, I want to read that book. What I do is, and I'm usually out walking, I open the app, open the Audible app and I go and see if it's there. If it's not there, you know, done. If it is there, I put it on my wish list. So what I want people to think is behavior is changing. People listen to a lot more audio because they're busy and they're reading more than ever with their ears. And we can touch people's lives in very different ways. So my podcast, for example, has been downloaded in 222 countries. That's pretty much every country in the world. <laughs> my books, I've sold books in 136 countries. So that's still quite a lot but it's not 222. Um, and I have uh, the number of downloads way outstrip the number of book sales I have. So you can reach people with your voice rather than your written words. Um, there are some purists who are like, 
an audiobook is not a real book <laughs> or dictation is not real writing or, um, you know, voice search isn't real search, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. But you have to face the future, people. Um, this is how people are behaving. And, uh, for example, the voice technologies, the smart speakers, Alexa, it's not just a smart speaker. It is a, a, a watch or it's on a phone. It's Google Assistant, which is on... 76% of the world's mobile phones are Android and they have Google Assistant and they have uh, Google Podcasts on them. If you're not on Google Play with your audiobooks and you're not available on Google Podcasts, how are those people going to find you? So the reason I wrote this book is because I realized, um, especially with my interest in AI, that the, 2019 was a tipping point for audio, um, for podcasting, for audiobooks um, and for voice technology. And in the 2020s, things are shifting in a big way. So I wanted to kind of codify everything I've been learning um, around audiobooks. So the first section is audiobooks, everything you need to know. Second section is podcasting, everything you need to know, not just to start your own show, but also to be a good guest, to how to pitch, like I give examples of how to pitch podcasters, how to market your books using podcasts, how to market audiobooks. And then the third part is about voice technologies. So it is going, it is speech to text. Um, so dictation technology, stuff like that. It's also the other way around, whatever I said, the other way around. <laughs> um, and then it's also about smart speakers. It's also about optimizing for voice search. So how we can be found with some of the new changes in um, search. Uh, and also then AI, how is AI going to impact things? So I just got today the third iteration of my voice double, which is using my voice narration to create an AI voice, which people can find at thecreativepen.com forward slash voice double if you want to go and listen to some examples. Um, and I'll put the third one up soon. And that means, well, basically, there will be voice licensing within, let's say, let's say, two, three years, most likely. Um, so I wanted to cover all of that and just give authors the tools and the knowledge to move into this next decade, armed with everything they need to know to get on with it. Because like, there's, there's not much out there in this area. There's like select blog posts on audiobook marketing or whatever, but nothing that kind of covers the whole audio ecosystem, which is becoming super important. Very much so. And I have to ask, if I license your voice for one of my fantasy audiobooks, will your husband be a buyer of that book? Or would that be too weird? <laughs> probably not. That's probably too much. But, uh, but on that, on that, what's lovely? Okay, so at the moment, if you want to do a full cast audio, right? Like your series, if you wanted to do full cast, that's astronomically expensive to have full cast audio done. But if you imagine a world where you can license different voices, um, then you can create these multicast audios in a much more cost-effective way. So what I see is the cost of audio is going to dramatically fall in what well, we've seen it dramatically fall. It wasn't that long ago. We couldn't even do audio. <laughs> and now we can. Um, so yeah, I think that what will happen is that my voice will be part of an online marketplace like, um, you know, when you get stock photos or stock music, it will be a bit like that. You know, you have a license for your music. You have a license for stock voices that you then use to create audio first products. So I think it's going to unleash a whole new wave of um, really exciting creativity as we can create with this kind of audio first mindset, uh, which will be fun. It'll be super fun. Definitely. And I'll get Mark Lefebvre to do the male voices and then <laughs> you can do the female voices. I mean, your AIs can <laughs> chat with each other there. Um, we have a question, couple questions on audiobooks. I did want to ask first, is there anything we can be doing for those who are more fiction uh, and maybe have a harder time you know, thinking of how they would do a podcast or things like that. Like, what are some things we could do for like, if people are going to be searching for audio to help them find our website or maybe our books on Amazon? 
or wherever, not just Amazon. We know <laughs> Joanna is a wide phonant. Totally wide. Um, yeah, well, that's why I mentioned Google before, because, uh, you know, all you guys are Americans. And uh, the truth is that most of America uses um, Apple podcasts, but most of the rest of the world is on Android. So, um, yeah, we're, we're global here. Um, but in terms of fiction, so this is really interesting. So, again, we've been around a while. I, I have seen a lot of fiction podcasts come and go. It is not an easy niche to be in to do fiction podcasting. There are some incredibly professional podcast fiction um, things out there, like Welcome to Night Vale, which has got book deals and doing live events. And, you know, there's a great podcast fiction community, but the monetization is the difficult thing. So, what I have done for fiction is I've started Books and Travel, so the Books and Travel podcast, um, where I interview authors and also I do my own solo shows about the places that inspire their work. So, my friend Orna Ross, who um, is uh, the founder of the Alliance of Independent Authors, is very well known in the indie community for self-publishing. But she's Irish and her novels, her, she writes literary fiction, historical fiction, time slip fiction. Um, her novels are incredible and they are based around Ireland and the a lot of the Irish heritage that Americans love, right? Americans love Irish heritage. So I was like, so I interviewed Orna about Ireland and we did not speak at all about publishing or book marketing, or even a writing process. It was all about Ireland. And I will, you know, as part of a natural conversation about sense of place and home and the meaning, the deeper meaning of what being Irish is, it's natural to talk about her fiction. In the same way, uh, Mark, you mentioned Mark Lefebvre, you know, we talk about Montreal. Um, actually, that was a non-fiction book. Um, but I'm talking to a lady tomorrow about Namibia in Africa. And she writes romance. Um, she's Namibian, a uh, white Namibian. And so in talking to different people or talking of Netflix, Vikram Chandra, who wrote Sacred Games, which is on Netflix, I just interviewed him about Mumbai. Um, so what books and travel is, is my attempt, because my, my books are all based on sense of place, is to bring the nonfiction angle to the fiction side. And that's what I suggest people do. So we mentioned dogs earlier. I know dogs don't feature that much in your fiction, right, Lindsay? <laughs> there have been a couple. They're hard to take on spaceships, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're hard to take. Um, uh, but let's, let's say they were about dogs. Um, you could have a podcast that really, you know, interviews dog people about dog stuff, which I just don't know about because I don't have a dog. Um, you know, or you just take the, we all have underlying themes of what we care about. So, um, earlier we mentioned my theology, my psychology. I've been on, um, Jungian psychology podcasts talking about how Carl Jung influenced, uh, whose read book influenced my book, Stone of Fire. Um, so that's what I want you to think as a not, as a fiction writer. What are the ways that you can tangentially talk to people about topics that might also relate to your books. Um, so for, you know, we were saying on Twitter, like both of us do uh, weightlifting now, right? Lindsay and I, we, we're strong women lifting weights. Um, I'm really interested to talk to women uh, in that community because I feel that's, you know, I'm part of that now. Now that's not in my fiction, but that's just part of who I am now. And that, could be something that I can then meet other people, talk about. So just think about the tangential things that might relate to your books or even just about you and pitch podcasts um, around that. It's good to know. Uh, when it comes to podcasting, well, not so much podcasting, but audiobooks, uh, I, I often worry about the logistics. Uh, uh, back in the early days of ACX, uh, well, not in the early days, my early days uh, of uh, using ACX, I looked at their site for like, they had requirements for how good your audio had to be in order to be able to sell on ACX. And they were sort of impenetrable to non-audiophiles. So I guess the question would be, uh, how plausible is it for somebody to be able to produce a, a, a sellable audiobook without access to a professional studio? 
Well, um, you guys, again, going way back, remember Simon Whistler from Rocking Self-Publishing? So he wrote the first book on audio for authors back before it was trendy. And uh, Simon, who had a wonderful voice, um, who still has, he's not dead. <laughs> he's just <laughs> left the niche. Um, but Simon used to just record at his kitchen table with a blanket over his head. And he did professional level audiobook narration years ago from that time like you're talking. So again, I'll mention Matt Buckman's book and Buckman spelled B-U-C-H-M-A-N, M-L Buckman, his book on how to narrate and produce an audiobook. His book has all the technical stuff in. So I decided with my book that I was not going to do that. So I do not have technical settings in my book because I don't do that. I pay a um, professional to, I edit my stuff, but he does the mastering. Dan, who also does my podcast, does my um, mastering. Whereas Matt, in his book, he, he has a process exactly for how to do the mastering according to those standards. So I would suggest that book is really useful if you want to do it yourself or you can, um, if you can record at home. I mean, I recorded in my closet for years until we moved house. Um, so as long as you're surrounded by soft furnishings, you'll probably be all right. Um, but I can see your room there has got quite high ceilings and, um, you know, you wouldn't record in there, for example, but a closet. Matt also has some pictures in his book of sitting, you know, like um, a long um, coat, a, play, a coat hanger where you a coat hanger, you know, like a wardrobe, you can put a blanket over that and you can hide under that. So there are ways to do this on the cheap for sure. Uh, you just, and the technical settings, like seriously, it's a bit like self-publishing for the first time. Like once you've done it once, you're going to be fine. So I would say the barrier is in your mind and also how much of this do you want to do? So that's why I don't do it. I don't want to know that. I just want to pay someone to do that for me. So that, that's the thing with the audiobook process or even podcasting, any of this stuff, you get to choose how much of it you want to do yourself. And then um, you do, you know, pay freelancers to do other things over time as you make a bit more income. See, this is all very fascinating to me. And I'd be asking more questions, except I keep coughing. So, <laughs> um, so you've kind of hinted around to this a bit in your answers already, but I want to take a bit more of a direct approach. Um, in your book, you talk about um, audiobooks, podcasting, voice technologies, right? That's basically the subtitle. Yeah. Um, but, and you say there's more in, more to the voice ecosystem than just podcasting and audiobooks. And then you proceed to outline some of the main technologies that might be useful to authors. Um, would you give a, a very brief overview on that? Give, yeah, give readers so, something to come to. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So speech to text, um, dictation. Uh, so there's a chapter on dictation because, and I know, um, Andrew, you've been on my show talking about dictation. You are the dictation queen, so you don't need that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else does. In fact, I think you're even quoted in it. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> um, uh, text to speech. So um, using automated text readers to proof manuscripts, but also the emerging audio products around text to speech. So for example, I cover it more in the AI section, but with the voice double, I use Descript. So I can type text and then highlight that text and then it can speak that. It can turn that into audio. So we get, and if people are feeling like, I don't want to do this, it's not going to be long until you don't have to do, you don't have to do this. We don't have to do it now, but I mean, you'll be able to create audio without actually doing it yourself because you would be able to license a, a, a voice for a lot cheaper. And, th and this is the thing, all of this technology means it's getting cheaper. The third one um, in, in that voice technology section is uh, voice assistants and smart speakers. So for example, there's um, Alexa skills. There's this really great uh, thing where that they designed for military families. So for example, um, you know, mum is a military away uh, somewhere serving the country and wants to read to their kid at home and dad's at home with the kid. Um, and the kid's like, oh, I really miss my mum. And they say, um, I think it's a Google one. Hey, Google, play mum's story. And then mum reads the story. So it's a recording that goes through the through the device. Um, there's, you know, there's teddy bears and stuff that do that kind of thing. So this, I don't want people to think that the voice assistant stuff is just, hey, Siri, what's the weather today on my watch? Oh no, Siri's broken up. <laughs> um, so, you know, or, or um, you know, Alexa play Ed Sheeran. <laughs> it, it's much more than that. I mean, it's, it's people using these devices 
as part of their life. Um, or even like I've used the example of, and this voice search on mobile is what I really, really want people to get this because people are like, well, I don't use an Apple watch. I don't use it's voice to text. But the thing is, if people, the way people search with their voice is completely different to how they type. And this is critical if you do any kind of SEO. And I think it will eventually start changing the Amazon search terms as well, because at the moment people do seem to type into Amazon. But I think what we're going to have is obviously people are buying on Alexa. It's really easy to buy on Alexa, um, but people use different words. So I want you people to try it. You know, instead of typing the search on your phone, use the little microphone button and speak your query. And I bet you, you will speak differently to how you type and that's impacting search. Um, and then uh, artificial intelligence and the future of voice. So as we record this, just last weekend, the first um, case of copyright has been applied to an AI written uh, article. So this, I didn't think it would happen this fast, but it has actually happened um, in China. And, uh, you know, there's a thing in the US, the Copyright and Patent Agency is taking submissions for comments on AI and copyright. Um, there's talk of um, deepfake. Uh, Sundar Pichai from Google, you know, from Alphabet has said, we need to regulate for the deepfakes. Deepfakes is basically what I'm talking about, the voice synthesis, the video synthesis. So there's all these kind of issues that as ever, technology is kind of scary, but it's also pretty amazing. So what I want people to do is realize what is, what is the potential ahead for how this will impact us. So for, for authors, the rise of voice licensing will mean we can do more audio, but we all know what that means. More audio means it's harder to sell audio. <laughs> it means my advantage of being first in the market with more books is blown out of the water by everyone else arriving. So we need more AI tools to find better content, that type of thing. So what we're looking at, I think, is an explosion of audio content in the 2020s. And if you want to position yourself to be found and sell books and sell other things, then you need to know this kind of thing. But if you are, if you are a narrator, for example, then you need to think about voice licensing, what that might mean for your business. And I've talked to some people who are like, I would never go near that. That's just wrong. And I'm like, yeah, but you might lose out because if you're not the default American female 35-year-old, someone else is going to be. <laughs> so, so you need to think about that and how you're going to do that. So AI, AI copyright law, again, this is something that will be coming in the 2020s. So as I, I mean, I say all of that. So the book does have all of this stuff. It's a pretty big book, actually. Um, but it's, um, I'm really proud of it. I actually feel like this is a really important book at this point. Um, I don't say that for all my books. Like I feel like this is not um, available in other books right now. And I hope it's going to be useful for people. And I don't, want, I don't want people to be scared about the future. I want us to think about it as this wave and we want to surf the wave, not be drowned in it. Very true. And I'm glad you're covering a lot of this on your podcast because I'm actually one of those people that's like, oh, I hate voice search. You know, I don't want to talk to my phone. But one of the mistakes I've learned is I can't base, I can't market based on what I like because I'm probably not representative of anyone. No, you're no. not, Lindsay. <laughs> exactly. Like three people are like me. And then there's a whole bunch of people that, you know, find the books their own way. Yeah. Well, this is really important. Well, first of all, we are authors are not normal. We know we're not normal. Um, most people don't create. Most people consume. Most people are watching Netflix or buying books or playing games, not creating the thing. So we're abnormal in that way. But also we're introverts. And so we don't default to voice. And this is really interesting. But you, I don't know. I, ha I, I think also the younger people and kids, especially, they're so used to now growing up with these devices that they're speaking in a much more natural way to devices that we wouldn't even think about it because we're Gen X. Well, I'm Gen X. <laughs> uh, I think you're Gen X, Lindsay. The other, you, 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 the other two were millennials, right? 
they're the young pups on the show. I <laughs> think we're a little closer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I feel like, no, I mean, we, we didn't have the internet. We learned to type things, but now it, things have changed. But also this, um, Google Bert, uh, it's, it's been huge. It has a huge impact. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to see that come into Amazon over time because you can, I mean, you can use the Amazon app on your phone. Um, it's not as great. I don't think for search and I don't really use it to search myself, but certainly Alexa, um, you know, that's, you can buy so easily. It's like, here's a sample. Do you want to buy this? Yes, that's it. (laughs) So we want to take advantage of these new type of technologies, even if we don't use them ourselves. It's funny that I have a nephew who's almost two and yesterday he asked Alexa for cereal. So he is very much accustomed to asking for things from machines. He just doesn't quite understand which things the machines can give him. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, we're talking about audio and we had, we had the BookFunnel guy on recently. And BookFunnel has, has recently given people a relatively easy way to sell short audio directly because you can now uh, sell, you know, two, what, how long is it? It's, it's uh, so two hours. Two hours. Um, so you can't sell it at the moment. I believe it still has to be free. Uh, well, it's, it's a, a platform that is, that is developing because I mean, you can sell other things from, from, uh, from book funnel. So presumably if it's not already, I think, I think it might, it might be, the hooks might be in place. Um, has that changed the landscape? Like, is there going to be uh, a direct sale for audio? Is, is that, you think it's going to be part of, of the, the future for self-publishing audio? Well, it's already the current. Um, I mean, obviously, Authors Direct from Find Your Way Voices is a direct sale platform. Unfortunately, only available to Americans. <laughs> uh, I'm on with Find Your Way Voices about that. Um, but you can sell audiobooks direct at the moment. I've been selling audiobooks direct for a decade. Um, so I've, I started out using eJunkie back in the day. Um, then I moved to sales and now I use PayHip. Um, so, um, yeah, I've always used direct sales as, as part of my channels, mainly because I'm an international author. And again, um, actually many people in the world can't use Amazon or can't use the Amazon ecosystem because maybe they don't have a credit card or they don't have uh, a record, like even people in Greece, for example, were, were struggling with Amazon, but uh, when they had their financial crisis. So, um, that's why I have always had direct sales. So I think that, yeah, it just hopefully will become more mainstream. What we need is the Authors Direct app to be more readily um, recognized. But Chirp Books, which um, is from BookBub, has now launched and you can now directly do promotional pricing through Find Your Way onto Chirp. Um, you can, uh, there's a beta at the moment, but I'm sure it will be coming out wider soon. You can now do audiobook adverts on BookBub. Um, you, in the beta uh, right now. Um, but all of this is definitely coming. And the thing is, you can't use Chirp if you're exclusive to ACX, because as we all know, you cannot control your pricing when you go um, exclusively through Amazon. So these are really important shifts. And as people realize that they can't do promotional pricing unless they're wide with audio, I think we're going to see more people get into wide for audio, more people use Authors Direct app. And hopefully as that goes global, we will see that happening. Um, So the problem with selling Audio Direct is the app you use to listen to it. Most people are not techy enough to download a load of MP3 files and sync them to their phone. Uh, And that's what Authors Direct will fix um, whereas, you know, what I do, it's only ever going to be tiny and what Damon will do at book funnel will also only ever be tiny because most people will not be able to sort out those, um, formats. So until once book funnel has a kind of, you know, you can play the audio in your audible app or whatever, that will be when things really go. So yeah, give it 18 months, maybe hopefully. I'm always too early though. So maybe three years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They're really on top of things over there. So I'm positive there. It's coming, you know, I mean, maybe hopefully it'll be global. (laughs) (laughs) This is my, you know, this is always my bugbear. It's like, it's got to be a global option. Yeah. Okay. So one last question for me, um, while we're at the business masterclass, um, 
for authors this past October. You mentioned you have 200 individual streams of income. Um, how has that come about? You've kind of actually answered all of this throughout the interview, but it's, I mean, this is through your nonfiction. This is through your fiction. Um, will you break down the fiction part for our listeners? And then just briefly, I think you've pretty much hit on a lot of the nonfiction yeah. stuff already. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, this again comes from a mindset of create creation, but also business. I'm a businesswoman. I like making money. So from day one, anything that I could potentially monetize, I have included that somehow <laughs> in the business. So with, with the fiction, um, just, you know, just a few of, well, for example, I think today or the, well, not today, I guess I lose track of time, but Amazon, even just Amazon, I think I get 13 different payments from Amazon. Um, so that's all the different country stores. It's the Amazon affiliate. It's, you know, whatever it is, it's all these different, like that's just 13 from Amazon. And then, um, I sell print books wide. So Ingram Spark for wide. Actually, I just uh, shipped a whole load of books from Ingram to this bookstore in Michigan. So that if you're not wide with print, you're missing out on bookstores, which is another little tip. Um, you know, audiobooks, obviously there's, there's Findaway, there's um, or ACX. Um, I sell direct, as I said. Then, I mean, even eBooks, I mean, Publish Drive, Drafter Digital, Apple, you know, all of these different, so even just book sales, Kobo, let's not forget Kobo. <laughs> um, even just book sales, I don't even know what we're up to, like 20 or something, um, 20 different payments into the bank account for just book sales. Um, and then obviously I have all the different um, formats. So I'm not counting it by number of books. Uh, so I have like 32 books or something, but all the formats now. So I do um, obviously eBooks, um, audio books, paperback, large print and hardback books. So all of those and box sets as well and print box sets, not in a box, like whatever they call them. <laughs> <laughs> I always forget what we're meant. corrected on that. It's the omnibus. Yes. <laughs> omnibus. Yeah. See, I just, I just can't remember omnibus. Um, yeah. Chris Rush told me I was using the wrong word. Um, but yes. So with fiction, I do sell fiction direct. That's yeah. It really is only book sales. I'm trying to think. Yeah. I mean, it really is only book sales with fiction, which is why I think it is not, you know, this is, this is, this is the business my husband and I run. We don't have anything else. I don't have a day job. <laughs> so I'm like, that's not enough. I need to have more. <laughs> Hence all the affiliate income and then the courses, um, speaking podcast sponsorship. I have like seven or eight different income streams from podcast sponsorship, Patreon, uh, all of these different things. But, and then I, essentially track most what's so interesting with affiliate income and book sales as you know is you don't invoice for it it just arrives in your bank account so that's what's pretty cool when you have these multiple streams of income is there's literally you check your phone and there's some more money coming in and that instead of just once a month it's a kind of constant stream oh things like you know the video the tutorial videos i was talking about all of those different affiliates will pay at different times of the month so you get those coming in at different times but it doesn't it's not so much that uh it's happening now it's that i thought about that from the beginning and have consistently put out information that will help people, but also drive people into revenue streams in an ethical and friendly way. <laughs> so for example, that um, tutorial on how to build your author website, that's like the third version of that video I've recorded over the years, because you know, you need to update it um, each, you know, every now and then. But that because I know that consistently makes money. And there's actually lots of authors now who have uh, videos on how to build websites. <laughs> so it's not something that, you know, you, you can do that. Anyone listening, you can still do that just because I've done it doesn't mean you can't or Vellum tutorial or a Scrivener tutorial, whatever you do. Yeah, I think Bluehost must pay millions of dollars a month in affiliate income. They're everywhere and everybody's an affiliate for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
All right. My final question for you, uh, since you're doing so many things, fiction, nonfiction, two podcasts at least, yes. and then Q&A on Patreon, <laughs> how do you decide where you're going to put your time? Is it just about like what can earn the most money or what you're most passionate about or, or kind of a mix of it? Oh, no. I mean, for my writing, it's definitely muse, muse focused. Um, so this audio book, like I said, I, I didn't even know it was coming. I didn't, I, I'm not organized enough to plan which books I write. It's just every morning I have a creative slot and what, what is bubbling up is what I focus on. So what happened with this audiobook after a podcast movement was I was like, I have to write this. This is, this is now, this has to happen. Um, and so I'm getting that done. I also can't really do more than one book at a time because I feel like uh, I need to concentrate. So, um, but then I know I've got a deadline for the audio book for audio for authors, which is two weeks time. And then February and March will be fiction. So I know that I will, and I'll finish Map of the Impossible, which is the third book in my, um, you know, fantasy series, split world fantasy series. Uh, so I do write all these different things. So I know that's coming. Um, I know I have to write another arcane book this year that is based on some trips I took last year. So I need to, I need to, I know what that's going to be and I'm going to write that. So I, I always have this, this creative time in my day. Um, and then I have the marketing and the business side. So I think it's very useful being in the UK because, you know, like you said, it's your morning, it's my evening. So I get all morning before Americans start getting up around my one o'clock in the afternoon. So I get emails after lunch and do podcast interviews and stuff, but my mornings are pretty much creation focus every day. Um, so yeah, I, I think I've managed, mostly I've managed a good balance. I've had my periods of wanting to throw it all in and run away, but generally I, I can strike a balance between creation and making money. And again, like I said, if you just plan like, um, the Vellum tutorial, for example, or the, you know, Bluehost tutorial, once it's, once it's up there, it just makes money every month, as long as you drive traffic to it, um, which I do through content like, like this, um, podcasting and stuff. So if you're organized, um, and you have a business mindset and you think about it that way, then it doesn't need to impinge on your fiction writing for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And do you want to remind folks, audiobooks for authors, it comes out in March. Is that right? Uh, it's called Audio for Authors. Audio for <laughs> Authors. See, I, that's why you have to do the closing. <laughs> yeah, so Audio for Authors, audiobooks, podcasting, and voice technologies out uh, first week of March 2020 um, with the audio version as well, which is why it's going out a bit later. Um, then obviously the Creative Pen Podcast, Pen with a Dovlen, um, or Books and Travel Podcast if you enjoy the travel side where we do not talk about publishing or book marketing. <laughs> any of that. We just talk about travel and different places. So that's cool. So thanks for having me, guys. This has been really fun. All right. Thank you. And we'll have the uh, audio for authors spelled correctly in the show notes. If uh, anybody, they ought to be able to just type it in with their voice search to Siri yes. and, and pick up a copy. And it's on pre-order so they can order it as soon as they hear the show. And that is all. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you to Joanna Penn for joining us today and Joshua Pearson for editing and producing the show. Uh, make sure you pick up Joanna's book, support her, give her 201 streams of income. We appreciate it. And also check our Facebook group out. If you have not, you can uh, search for Six Figure Authors on Facebook or uh, the show notes. The link is there. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. So everybody.